Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Equinor. How low can we make carbon emissions go? Equinor's answer is one kilometre below the seabed. We're planning to capture CO2 emissions and safely store them under the sea. Visit equinor.co.uk. Last year's words belong to last year's language, wrote the poet T.S. Eliot. And next year's words await another voice. And as we exit 2021 in much the way we started it, with a new Covid variant wreaking havoc with our lives, the hope that a new year always brings has rarely been more welcome. For who among us will really miss 2021? A year when more British people died from Covid than through all the horrors of 2020. A year when winter seemed to last forever and summer barely got going at all. A year which began with a glorious vaccine bounce, but ended with the bleak prospect of vaccine escape. For Boris Johnson, 2021 was, to steal a footballing phrase, a year of two halves. The Prime Minister gloried in the joys of spring, riding high on his early vaccine successes and then, after the summer break, reshuffling his cabinet to devastating effect. Boris Johnson knows exactly what he's doing, we were told. A decade or more in power was all but assured. But the optimism tumbled with the falling leaves as autumn and winter scandals left the PM battered and bruised. As the year ends, the Tory vultures are circling and even Sir Keir Starmer smells his chance. But if a week is a long time in politics, then surely anything is possible in the year that lies ahead. So which political forces will be shaping our 2022? Which are the next big stories for which we should all be bracing ourselves now? For our final podcast of the year, I thought it'd be fun to ask 10 of the smartest people I know to preview 10 different aspects of the year ahead and then to race through the lot in no time at all. For 2022, we'll bring dramatic elections and showpiece political events around the world. Careers will be made and ambitions will be thwarted, and there will be twists and turns that scarcely seem possible when the year began. Not all of our crystal ball-gazing today will prove correct, of course, but we can at least get you thinking about where the flashpoints will arise. So from Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week in the season four finale of Westminster Insider, we're looking at the year ahead in 53 and a half minutes, and asking what we'll all be talking about, laughing about, kicking off about in 2022. It's January 2022, and sadly, there's only going to be one story in town as the year gets underway. Several nations have tightened travel restrictions as scientists work out just how much of an additional threat Omicron poses. We begin tonight with the Omicron variant of the coronavirus spreading like wildfire in the UK. Scientists in South Africa say the new Omicron variant of the coronavirus appears to spread more than twice as quickly as Delta, which is so far... As Boris Johnson considers whether further lockdown restrictions might be needed, I asked the Financial Times science columnist Anjana Ahuja co-author of Spike, The Virus Versus the People, how she thinks the next year of the COVID pandemic is likely to play out. We've had a little bit of good news. I would say that our glasses are now just a little bit over half full um, because of the uh, modelling from Imperial that came out on Wednesday. What it shows is that Omicron does seem to cause milder disease. The really big caveats on that is that Omicron's been mostly circulating in young people. So how that's going to play out when we go into older age groups, um, I think, is is yet to be seen. And a lot of people quite justifiably find it really difficult to understand why you might need measures for a milder variant. But actually, if you've got a very, very fast transmission rate, if you've got a virus that's spreading like wildfire, then actually all your cases are bunched up together at the same time. And even if you've got a very small proportion of a very large number, 
all going to hospital at the same time, that can still overwhelm the NHS. And of course, at the time of recording this interview Thursday morning, the Prime Minister has not yet decided if we're going to need more restrictions in January. Either way, presumably at some point we can expect this wave to sort of blow itself out. Would we then be expecting future waves from new variants or could this be the end of the matter? I think it's really difficult to tell because, you know, Omicron has suddenly hit us hasn't it, after what we thought was the horror of Delta. Um, And I think the fact is that in many, many countries around the world, including ours, and even though we've got vaccines, we still have really super high transmission. With high transmission, even if you have vaccines that stop severe disease and death, you still have the capacity for the virus to evolve. The arrival of these new antiviral drugs, COVID pills and so on, that we're just starting to see coming on stream now, could that revolutionise the way that we deal with COVID in 2022? It could. I mean, it's great that we've got these pills. Um, Some of them have to be administered quite early after infection. So that's one thing to note. There is also a limited supply. I don't think it should be seen as a substitute for vaccination. And when you listen to the folks at the World Health Organization, they're very clear that, first of all, they have to be distributed equitably because this virus can be anywhere in anyone. But also, that may not stop transmission. And again, we go back to this question of, you know, what is the price we're paying for high transmission? The price we're paying is the risk of new variants. Do we need to make it a priority in 2022 to get the rest of the world vaccinated to reduce transmission on a sort of global scale? Yes, I think we do. The argument is so compelling. I mean, the world economy has lost trillions. And when you think about the billions it would cost to vaccinate the world and get more, you know, these doses rolled out everywhere. I think that's really seen as the only way that we can kind of get a hold of this this beast. Can we assume we'll be all getting fourth jabs um, in 2022? I think it is likely that we will get fourth jabs because we know that antibody um, levels wane after sort of four to six months or so. And I hope that we can do that and supply uh, doses to the rest of the world because there is a supply issue, but there are a lot of, you know, there are billions of vaccines that are due for manufacture. So who knows? I mean, there is some optimism that perhaps 2022 could, we could see the back of this virus um, and that it becomes endemic, say, so that it just becomes one of those circulating background coronaviruses. I think it's a bit early to say whether we're there yet or whether even 2022 will will get us there to be honest the way the pandemic plays out next year of course is likely to have a significant impact on the fortunes of the prime minister a man who enters 2022 reeling from a succession of scandals which have sent his poll ratings tumbling some in westminster are even starting to wonder whether we might soon hit the magic number of 54 tory mps whose letters to party chiefs would trigger a no-confidence vote. I asked Paul Goodman, editor of the influential Conservative Home website, how the next year is shaping up for Boris Johnson. I think we've got to look at the rocks that are ahead and visible in the stream as his trouble boat moves down the water. So the first one, obviously, is Omicron, And I think there's a paradox about Omicron, which is the worse it gets for the country, the better it gets for him in terms of any challenge to his leadership. Because if there's a national crisis, it's less appropriate for Conservative MPs to put in letters calling for a leadership challenge. Then after that, there are a couple of very tricky ones. The first one is the Gite inquiry into the Downing Street wallpaper Now, Christopher Geit has gone very quiet and one has to wonder what this means. Is he going to emerge with a bombshell? Does that set a chain of events in motion which leads to a leadership challenge? The other rock ahead is Sue Gray's inquiry into Downing Street staff gatherings, as it's called. I think it's got fascinating possibilities. There's a whole question about whether or not she would be ultimately prepared to say the Prime Minister is culpable for any staff gatherings that she believes were wider the rules. So you see already we've not got through January and there are these visible rocks. 
So what do I think will happen? I think 50 or so letters is a lot of letters. And that if Johnson can steer his way through January and February, Conservative MPs will start saying, well, we can't and shouldn't do anything until after the local elections. So the local elections looks to be the main danger time. And I would normally have said the hurdle of 50 or so letters is so high that it's unlikely to be jumped. But in the last few weeks, I've started to feel a challenge is more likely than unlikely just because all administrations are plagued by troubles. But this one appears particularly to be so because of the chaotic style of Boris Johnson. And that has sometimes served him extremely well. At the moment, it's serving him rather badly. And I just feel Conservative MPs believe that they can't rely on him when they have to go into battle for the government. And that is the biggest weakness of all. Lots of Conservative MPs I've spoken to are calling for a sort of reset in the new year with a new or tweaked team in Downing Street and a more professional approach. Do you think that's a realistic thing for them to be hoping for? It's not impossible to believe in a tweak. Boris Johnson tweaked his mayoralty in London very early on after a series of disasters and brought in Simon Milton, who was one of the only two or three people who'd been able to manage Boris Johnson successfully. What would concern me if I were uh, a Tory strategist or a Tory backbencher is I don't see who that Simon Milton figure is. And it's not even really clear whether Boris Johnson wants such a person because he had a kind of equivalent to one called Dominic Cummings, who we all remember well. And in the end, Boris Johnson decided that this town ain't big enough for the two of them. So I turn the question back in a way and ask, what does Boris Johnson really want? Does he really want to survive and prosper? Or is there a kind of death wish lurking in the bosom of the Prime Minister? Just finally, if there was a leadership challenge, how do you think he'd fare? Because there's one thing getting the letters and, and voting. It's another thing actually forcing the Prime Minister out. This depends on many factors. There are the polls... There is the cost of living crisis, as it's so called. There is rising tax. There is rising borrowing. There is all the drama of emerging into a post-Brexit world and what may or may not be a post-Covid world. And in the end, they need to take a decision about whether Boris Johnson can deal with any of this. What would worry me if I were a, a Downing Street strategist is that you don't have to lose the ballot to lose. I mean, remember... Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May both won confidence ballots. But Margaret Thatcher lost in a second round and Theresa May was out within six months. These ballots, they have a way of being the beginning of the end. So plenty there for the Prime Minister to chew on as he tucks into his Christmas turkey. In February, all being well, the nation should have something to celebrate as Queen Elizabeth marks her platinum jubilee, an unprecedented 70 years on the British throne. We're even getting an epic double bank holiday weekend to celebrate, though that's not until the end of May. In Beijing, the Winter Olympics get underway at the start of February amidst a diplomatic, if not sporting, boycott by much of the West. And the government is finally due to publish its long-awaited white paper on levelling up, Michael Gove's brave attempt to make regional economic strategy sexy at last. As a former local government reporter on town and city papers, I can only say, Mr Gove, good luck with that. But any hopes Boris Johnson may be harbouring for another joyous spring will come crashing into the harsh realities of March and April, when what we're all going to be calling a cost-of-living crisis, hat tip to Ed Miliband circa 2013, really starts to bite. As things stand, there's no budget or other fiscal event planned until the autumn, but don't be surprised if something gets hastily pencilled in for March. That's because, as Torsten Bell, head of the Resolution Foundation think tank, told me, the beginning of April is shaping up as a crunch point for household finances up and down the country. I think it's actually hard to underestimate how big a deal April is likely to be from a household finances perspective. It's likely when we'll be seeing the peak of the inflation wave 
uh, hitting then now looking like we might get up to inflation rates of 6%. It's specifically the month when the energy price cap will go up by something in the mid hundreds of pounds, maybe 500 pounds, you know, almost unimaginable increases in energy bills. That's obviously on the average bill. So if you're a high energy user, because you live in a leaky house, or you've got a lot of kids, then you can expect your bill to go up by more than that. It's when taxes go up. So all those things brought together, at one level, you almost think they're so large that it can't actually happen. And the government will have to think seriously about whether they're really going to be putting up energy prices and taxes by that amount, just as we come through the inflation squeeze of this winter. And are there any policy levers you could expect Rishi Sunak to pull to try and ease this crisis? I mean, you know, we need more money for social care. Energy bills are going up for reasons beyond his control, as is inflation, you could argue, at this stage. So what's he supposed to do? It's almost inevitable that there'll be question marks about whether April's the right time to start the tax rise sequence that we're going to be seeing in the years ahead. Remember, we've got very large tax rises in the years ahead of us, around £3,000 per household by the middle of this decade, compared to when Boris Johnson became the Prime Minister. So they start this April, that's early than most countries around the world are starting. Large chunks of the Conservative Party don't want tax rises full stop. I would be surprised if by April, the Labour Party's position isn't that we should be delaying the national insurance rise. So people that do want higher taxes will be saying we should delay and people that don't want tax rises will be saying, well, that's better than nothing. At which point, if you're the government, you can do the maths. It's looking less than rosy. And if you look specifically at energy bills, you're completely right that this in the end is driven by global energy prices in most parts. But there are policy choices around that. There are choices around how we calculate the energy price cap. There's also choices about how quickly we try to use bills to claw back the costs that some companies have borne from taking on these customers from the failing firms. And if the Chancellor's looking ahead, those are exactly the things he'll be thinking about. And just on inflation, we saw very high inflation figures last week. You fear that will continue to rise through the early part of next year? 5% inflation is the highest we've seen in a decade. Yes, it's mainly driven by global forces. But if you look at what's happening to the prices that firms are actually facing, so producer prices, not the consumer prices we normally focus on, those have carried on rising. And that will in time also feed through into further rises in prices for consumers. So we should expect price rises, inflation to continue to push up in the early part of next year. Maybe that will peak in the spring next year. But even if that happens, it probably means that real wages will actually be falling through maybe the entire first half of next year. So it's not going to feel like, you know, good times have arrived even after we pass that peak of inflation. Something for us all to look forward to then, when the current Covid wave has finally passed. Indeed, the only light relief a beleaguered Boris Johnson might enjoy in April is the sight of his diminutive frenemy from across the channel, Emmanuel Macron, scrapping for his own political life. For French voters go to the polls on April the 10th in a presidential election. Under the French system, the top two candidates, assuming no one gets an outright majority, then go through for a head-to-head contest in a second round of public voting on April the 24th. I spoke to my Politico colleague, Reem Montaz, our senior correspondent in Paris, about how Macron's re-election bid is faring so far. This presidential election in April is shaping up to be extremely interesting with quite a few curveballs that we've just experienced. The first one being Éric Zemmour, this former polemicist who is now running for president, far-right radical, who's making actually the far-right leader, Marine Le Pen, seem kind of quaint. He's doing very well in the polls. He's polling at 15-16% with a real chance to be in the runoff. The other major, major surprise of the last couple of weeks is the rise in the polls of the conservative candidate. For the first time, the French conservatives have a woman running for president, and she is doing extremely well. Her name is Valérie Pécresse, and she's the president of the Paris region. And she is already predicted to be in the runoff in the current polls and giving Macron a real run for his money. And from a political point of view, where does she sit on the spectrum within the Republican Party? The reason why Valérie Pécresse is such a dangerous candidate for Macron is because She is actually succeeding so far in bringing together two very important components of what voters in France today want. On the one hand, 
quite a strict and strong line on immigration security. Most of the French electorate today is quite right wing when it comes to these issues. And at the same time, she is the only other mainstream candidate who is clearly very pro-European. And Macron had been counting on him being the only candidate in the election with a real shot at the presidency who is also pro-European. So now he's having to figure out how to reposition in order to distinguish himself. And that's because he was expecting the runoff to be against a very right-wing opponent. Exactly. So up until about end of November, all of the polls were predicting that the runoff of the election was going to be between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen, the far-right leader. But now the new polls are predicting that it could be between Emmanuel Macron and Valérie Pécresse. And so... In my conversations, even with advisors to Emmanuel Macron, I can feel that they aren't exactly sure how to attack her, what to do with the momentum she currently has in the polls. And Macron's problem is that when he was elected in 2017, he was mainly elected by center-left voters who are currently today saying that they want to abstain. They vote for him because they don't want to allow the far right to get to the presidency. But here is Valérie Pécresse, who is the candidate of the Conservatives. So she has the centre-right, that's her natural positioning. She appeals to the business community, which had supported Emmanuel Macron. She's appealing now to the pro-Europeans, but at the same time also appealing to those who want a harder line on security and immigration. This is a real challenge for Emmanuel Macron. How is his first term seen to have gone in France, would you say? Ah, that's a good question, because on the one hand, compared to the two previous presidents, who, by the way, did not win re-election, uh, he is doing much better in terms of his approval ratings at a comparable time of his presidency. He's currently hovering around 40% approval ratings, which is quite high given that he has had to deal with two years of pandemic. He's had to deal with the Yellow Jackets uh, protests. But what is really worrying his advisors is the level of abstention. Turnout has been really historically low when it came to local elections, regional elections. And if turnout is low in the presidential election, Macron will suffer. And is France ready for a female president at last? Ah, well, that is the million dollar question. France is quite a macho country. And so whether they're ready to elect a female president is really one of the big unknowns. Of course, Marine Le Pen has been in the runoff before, but also before her, socialist Ségolène Royal in 2007 was in the runoff. Let's see if 2022 will be the year of the woman in France. It's not just France that will be gripped with election fever come the spring. To normal folk, the start of May means bank holidays, warm sunshine and blooming flowers across the land. But to political geeks, it means local election season gets underway across the UK. Now admittedly, town and city hall elections do not have quite the glamour of the race for the Elysee, but they will inevitably be seen as another test of Boris Johnson's authority. And the Conservative peer, Robert Haywood, one of the UK's most respected local election sophologists, is already excited at the prospect. Well, in England, there are really a range of three different categories, probably. You've got all the London local authorities. Every single seat is up because they only have elections once every four years. So the classic London local authorities where the Conservatives have continued to hold on, Westminster, Wandsworth, Barnet, Hillingdon with the Prime Minister's constituency in, they'll all be areas of real attention. The other authority which is particularly relevant is Sutton, which has been Liberal Democrat controlled for several decades and is now seriously under threat from the Conservatives, question mark in light of recent by-elections. Going outside London, there's uh, the Metropolitan Authorities where the Conservatives generally did well at the last general election, what are colloquially referred to as the Red Wall as seats. And then thirdly, the district councils in the shires, places like Woking, Winchester, St Albans, all of those sorts of places where the Tory bastions have been. And there will clearly be a tension as to whether the Tories are weakening in those traditionally safe shire counties. 
What would a good night for Labour look like? Are there one or two big ticket councils they could hope to pick up if things go really well? Oh, well, Wandsworth is probably the most obvious one. The boundary changes are distinctly unhelpful to the Conservatives, and the Conservatives only just held on last time. Symbolically, if they did really well, then places like Hillingdon and Barnet might well fall. It's not just falling in terms of taking control. The Tories did incredibly well in a place like Sandwell last May. The question is going to be, have the Labour Party managed in those red wall areas to stop or reverse the gains which the Conservatives made last time? And, of course, Stockport, which uh, is a subject close to my heart. (laughs) I knew you'd react to the mere mention of it, um, where different parts of the authority vote Labour, vote Liberal Democrat, vote Conservative. And therefore, people will pick off over the runes of places like that. Given we're midterm in a Prime Minister general election point of view, is a good night for the Conservatives pretty much hanging on to what they've got? Oh, very much so. They will be pleased to hang on to the likes of Wandsworth, Westminster, Hillingdon, Solihull outside London. So limited expectations within the big authorities, but they will hope to stem the losses in comparison with 2021. And let's talk about Scotland and Wales. How are things shaping up there? Wales is dominated heavily by independents and fringe parties. These, like Scotland, were fought in 2017, not 2018 last. Overwhelmingly Labour. Labour will be looking to maintain its position. The Conservatives would like to make some inroads. In Scotland, 2017 was significant because it was the year the Conservatives came back. It was the great Ruth Davidson surge. She is no longer leader of the Tories in Scotland and the Tories will want to hold on to what they've got from 2017. But it will be another judgment on Nicola Sturgeon. And can the Labour Party start its clawing back of its base in places like Glasgow? I guess the big picture is these sorts of local elections are seen as a test of how all the National Party leaders are doing. Would it be a crushing blow for Boris Johnson to lose, you know, hundreds of councillors and several big councils? It would be a serious blow. And there's no question that all the party leaders benefit or lose from the local elections. They sit in front of the microphones, in front of cameras, etc., saying, oh, yes, we did really well in fill in the blank. But there is the undercurrent of a message which will be carried forward for the weeks after the local elections. But however excited I might be about the race to run Stockport Town Hall, the most important elections in the UK next year are not actually happening in Great Britain at all. Northern Irish voters also go to the polls in May to elect a new assembly at Stormont, and with the once-dominant DUP now in the thralls of a Brexit-induced crisis as Britain tries to renegotiate the Northern Ireland Protocol with Brussels, this election could prove truly historic. I asked the Belfast-based political columnist, Newton Emerson, why it's time people in Westminster finally started paying proper attention to Northern Irish politics next year. Because it's going to be all about the protocol. We've limited polling in Northern Ireland because it's too small to afford it, but what the polls show at the moment is Sinn Féin well ahead and the unionist vote splitting over the protocol three or four ways. So it looks like unionism might not have the largest party in Stormont for the first time since Stormont was restored 20 years ago. And that means they'll not hold the first minister's office they'll get the deputy first minister instead. Although the distinction there is purely symbolic, it's likely to be very powerful symbolism to have a Sinn Féin first minister for Northern Ireland. And how would you expect a Sinn Féin first minister to change things? Well, bearing in mind that the difference is only symbolic, they'll make a symbolic distinction with that. They'll say this represents change. We're probably going to have a Sinn Féin-led government in the Republic in a couple of years. If Sinn Féin is leading governments on both parts of the island, they're going to start pushing for a border poll. Although the numbers don't suggest that nationalism would win a border poll. They're going to use this symbolism to keep the momentum going for that idea. 
Has the DUP been damaged by the internal ructions we've all been watching over the past year or two? Yes, undoubtedly. Although that is now six or seven months ago that it got through three leaders in under two months, people do remember that. It did knock the tarnish completely off the party. And also on a longer term view, it's held responsible for Brexit and the protocol by the bulk of unionist voters. Unionist voters realise the DUP backed Brexit. They held the balance of power at Westminster during the critical two years of Brexit and continually vetoed soft deals until they ended up with the hardest Brexit imaginable. They also, of course, are directly responsible for putting Boris Johnson in office. So they might make a recovery, but everything depends on how the Brexit talks go. And the DUP is just a spectator in that. It has to take whatever it can get and spin it as best it can. And in terms of Brexit, that's obviously going to be a big story in Northern Ireland as it is in the UK through next year. How are you expecting that to develop? Where do you think the crunch points are going to come? We're going to get a Brexit deal on the protocol. It's going to be a slightly more mitigated protocol, a lower sea border, perhaps a a bit of a disguised role for the European Court of Justice. There'll be some kind of arbitration panel put in front of that. In theory, the DUP could have sold that as a better deal than it had a year ago. But timing is the problem. They were expecting these talks to be concluded by Christmas. Now they're going to run into the new year. Stormont rises for the election at the end of March. The DUP is faced with having to take a deal and immediately spin it as wonderful and go straight into the polls. I think that Jeffrey Donaldson, the leader, is out of time. And just lastly on Brexit, would any sort of deal on the protocol be widely welcomed in Northern Ireland now? Do we need to just put this behind us? Yes, everybody just wants to get this behind them. The polls show that the unionist voters themselves also are prepared reluctantly to accept a protocol deal and would be happy to go along with any practical mitigations that they can get. This crisis within unionism is largely about the DUP trying to find a way to live with what it has done. I think that if it could apologise, that would make a big difference. If it could show some contrition, if it could change its leadership, have a clear out at the top, as happens in normal parties. But that's not the way it works in Northern Ireland. We keep our leaders in place for 50 years. A sort of Nick Clegg, I'm so sorry, song or video from Jeffrey Donaldson to uh, cheer us all up. I think that the unionist and Presbyterian psyche in particular welcomes a born again contrition, <laughs> a penitent, uh, and, uh, and even Ian Paisley and Peter Robinson made good use of that in the past. But uh, it seems to be an ability the DUP has lost. So within a few short weeks in the spring of 2022, we might just see Northern Ireland's first Sinn Féin first minister, France's first female president, and the mega-rich borough of Westminster's first ever Labour leadership. Can you even imagine... Coming up in part two, we'll be racing through the autumn and winter of 2022, complete with a Labour Party knees up in Liverpool, a gathering of world leaders on a tropical beach and a football tournament in the middle of the Arabian desert. Stay with us. A message from Equinor. Back to that question. How low can we make carbon emissions go? Our answer is one kilometre below the seabed. At Equinor, we're planning to use carbon capture and storage to help decarbonise the north of England. Carbon emissions from the Humber and Teesside regions will be safely stored one kilometre below the North Sea. See how we're accelerating the UK energy transition at equinor.co.uk. The British summertime, thankfully, is generally pretty quiet in the world of politics possible Tory leadership contests notwithstanding, of course. So if we're lucky, things might just calm down for a spell. Although it's worth noting that at the end of June, the whole global circus heads to the Bavarian Alps, where the new German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, is hosting the annual G7 summit. Immediately after that, there's a NATO summit in Madrid, where Western leaders will no doubt be discussing whatever Vladimir Putin has been getting up to in Ukraine during 2022. But we should at least get a little light relief in August, when Birmingham hosts the Commonwealth Games, before politics returns in September with a bang. As ever, at the start of autumn, it'll be all eyes on party conference season, with Labour headed back to Liverpool before the Tory bash in Birmingham the following week. I asked the New Statesman's political editor, Stephen Bush, how confident Keir Starmer is likely to be feeling as the September conference season gets underway. He certainly goes into the new year in a considerably strengthened position. Rule changes have strengthened his position internally, partly because they make it harder for anyone to get on the ballot. And of course, part of 
a leadership coup being successful is a viable alternative. Secondly, his ratings, having taken a fairly big dip, have recovered back to the sort of what I think of as the David Cameron zone, right? Ratings nowhere near as stellar as Tony Blair's, but good enough that you can go, yeah, it's plausible this guy could lead his party out of opposition. You know, he has his preferred shadow cabinet. And of course, most importantly of all, his main opponent ends the year in bad shape. And everything is easier if you're the leader of the opposition, if your opponent is in bad shape. What need to be his main aims for the year? What does he need to develop in terms of his leadership to, to get himself where he wants to be by the end of 2022? I think the thing that Keir Starmer's leadership still lacks is the flavour, right? And then to sort of hark back to David Cameron, right? Again, like the last successful opposition leader. And, you know, what David Cameron successfully did in opposition is he basically said, look, I do like tax cuts. I'm not opposed to the state, particularly to the NHS. And I have come to terms with slash am loudly enthusiastic about the social liberalism of the new Labour period. I don't think that you could, in the same way, distinguish what it is about Keir Starmer that he has changed about the Labour Party beyond a kind of like, I look more respectable and Middle England's not afraid of me. The performances in the House of Commons have got better. You can tell that also he feels more confident. He's more confident with his back office team. He's more confident with his his front office team. I think what we have yet to see is kind of him going from the, he's having a bad time and here's why I would be different and better. We've seen with Omicron, right? He's been brilliant at summing up why the government is in a mess. But other than the, you know, important, but also not the be all and end all, other than the important distinction of I would not have had Christmas parties in my Downing Street, I don't think we've yet seen Keir Starmer really go and here's how I would be different and better. And I think that is the next big step he needs to take. And last question, do you reckon he'll be the next prime minister? No, I, I just think they've got to come from so far back. I think it's very hard to see how you do it in one term. And then I think um, it's very hard to see how, if you have the same leader fighting a second successive election, how you don't end up with the problem Neil Kinnock had in 1992, Jeremy Corbyn had in 2019. Then it was the Conservatives who were new and different and were the change proposition. And it was the Labour opposition which was clapped out and tired. So I think it is very hard to see, I think, a plausible scenario in which yeah, it, it could happen. Both are very volatile now. It's very, very difficult to win in one term, and I'm dubious that you can actually win it in two. But the fortunes of Labour and Keir Starmer kind of pale into insignificance amidst some of the really big geopolitical stories happening next autumn. There will be elections on October the 2nd in Brazil, one of the world's largest democracies, where on current polling, at least, the far-right populist president, Jair Bolsonaro, faces a crushing defeat to the leftist former president, Lula da Silva. Of even greater significance will be the Chinese Communist Party's 20th National Congress to be held later in October 2022. The China expert, Professor Rana Mitter of Oxford University, told me this five-yearly event will be the moment that President Xi Jinping truly cements his grip on power. This particular event in 2022 is of supreme political importance because it marks something that's unprecedented since the death of Mao, which is that the incumbent leader, Xi Jinping, is almost certainly going to be nominated for, and get, a third term in office as General Secretary of the Communist Party. It became imperative in a non-democratic society, communist China, to find a way to rotate the leadership peacefully, without people having to purge each other or launch campaigns against each other and just take their turns. And this is the first occasion in this era when that has essentially been shifted to potentially a continuing series of terms for the incumbent leader. Now, an awful lot is riding on Xi Jinping himself because he's made himself the centre of all of the major policy initiatives that are going on, the new five-year plan about basically growing China's role as a global exporter while at the same time increasing consumer spending at home, or deciding what, if anything, is going to happen about Taiwan, which they're continually threatening to unify with China, whether Taiwan wants it or not, or indeed to deal with relations with the United States and the threat of a conflict in the region over disputed issues such as the South China Sea. All of this is much more now on the leader's shoulders and the burden of responsibility, credit for anything that goes right, but presumably also having to carry the can if it goes wrong, 
is now firmly in Xi Jinping's hands. It's a really important, pivotal turning point moment, not least because all of us will be living with the consequences of what China's leaders and the people of China decide to do for the next five years, ten years and decades to come. Sticking with Asia for just a moment longer, the end of October will bring us the most desired political event of the year. Expect an almighty scramble among lobby journalists and Downing Street officials alike for a ticket to the annual G20 summit, which this year is hosted by Indonesia, meaning a meeting of world leaders on the island paradise of Bali. I'm putting my name down for that one as I speak. Perhaps a little more significant than the G20 talking shop, however, will be the midterm elections in the US. I asked Politico DC playbook author and chief Washington correspondent Ryan Lizer if the vote will inevitably be seen as a referendum on President Joe Biden's performance. Absolutely. Midterm elections really are about the president's popularity and the total number of losses that a president suffers in the House is highly correlated with his own approval rating. Now, his approval rating is generally correlated with the economy, so it's all sort of tied together with how people are feeling. And right now, there's very mixed news in the American economy. So, you know, if you talk to Democrats, they will emphasize the low employment rate and higher wages and growth. Republicans have been single-mindedly obsessed with rising prices. And rising prices is, you know, that's a big issue. So what polling is picking up is that people are really worried about rising prices and the low unemployment rate and higher wages is sort of being overwhelmed by the bad inflation news. What chance would you give him of turning it around? The history of the public's views of a president and a party in a midterm is that basically sentiment starts to cement in the summer. And by August, right before the American Labor Day in early September, it's really baked. And so that means he's only got six to eight months to show real progress. In our system, what a president and Congress can do is very limited when it comes to inflation. It's really the Fed, which is independent, that has the blunt instruments that can attack inflation, first among those raising and lowering interest rates. And they want to tamp down growth, but not do it so much that the economy has a sort of hard landing and falls into a recession. Okay, so if the first part of the year doesn't go well for him, what would a Republican-controlled House actually mean for Biden? It's a great question. The big change would be Republicans gaining the investigative machinery of the House of Representatives. So when you have the White House controlled by one party and the House of Representatives controlled by another party, the big, big clash that happens is government oversight that very often turns into intensely partisan investigations that can just, one, overwhelm the president's legislative agenda and kind of kill it, frankly, and two, can tie them down in subpoenas and requests for the executive branch to testify. If you remember the Whitewater Investigations that really took off after Bill Clinton lost Congress in 1994 and eventually led to the Monica Lewinsky investigation and Clinton's impeachment. 2010, when Barack Obama lost the House of Representatives, if you remember the Benghazi investigation, that was a few years later. And if he lost the Senate as well, what would be the significance of that? Does that matter? It does. It does. Controlling one chamber, you have a great deal of leverage, right? The big stuff that he wants to do, where there's really no bipartisan consensus, that stuff would be very, very hard. One more very important thing I should talk about, and that is, it is the view of Democrats that since the 2020 election, Republicans led by a lot of misinformation and frankly, lies coming from Donald Trump, are convinced that the 2020 election was stolen. Now, let's just say straight up, there's no evidence for that whatsoever. But in a lot of states that are very important in our presidential elections, there is a movement to put in place some kind of kill switches that in a presidential election would allow state legislatures controlled by Republicans to 
short circuit the electoral vote counting by not sending the electors uh, to Washington. It's probably the most frightening and most shocking development in American politics right now that that's going on in some states. And a consequence of Biden losing Congress is that some of those efforts accelerate and or the Democrats are not able in the run up to the 2022 elections to pass some legislation that would prevent that kind of dire situation from happening. I think for a lot of Democrats, if they don't pass that and they lose Congress next year, there's a lot of freak out about what that means long term for the Democratic Party. So, not much at stake there then. Just the future of democracy in the nation that protects the free world. Still, on what ought to be a lighter note, the final big political event of the year will actually be a sporting one. The Men's Football World Cup. England have already qualified, and either Scotland or Wales could join them if they win their qualifier matches in March. But for the first time ever, the 2022 World Cup won't be kicking off until the winter, mid-November to be exact, when the baking heat has eased a little in host nation Qatar. As David Conn, the Guardian's investigations correspondent and longtime football columnist, told me, the decision to hand the tournament to a tiny but mega-rich Gulf oil state could hardly have been more political. Let's be honest, the reason why Qatar won this bid is because this region is per capita the very, very richest in the world. They've got limitless funds, in a way, because we do know that they don't seem to have limitless funds to pay the actual workers. But in terms of the design of the stadiums, the build of the stadium, the infrastructure, they've got billions to spend. And when that World Cup is finally on television, it's going to be globally projecting gorgeous stadiums, beautifully lit, as a worldwide projection from Qatar of... Here we are on the world stage. And just put that into a bit of context for us, because as you're, of course, aware, the Gulf states have been getting more and more involved in global sports. What is actually going on here from a sort of geopolitical point of view? It's about their countries being known, being formidable on the world stage. And so with Qatar, it was really an incredibly ambitious move not just to bid for hosting Formula One, which Saudi and Abu Dhabi do, not just backing a Tour de France team, which Dubai Emirates now do, and obviously the Emirates Airlines sponsors Arsenal and several other very major European football clubs, but to actually host the World Cup and have to build eight stadiums in, essentially, it's a very small country, I mean, it's just one city, really, and bring everyone to Qatar. But they have absolutely dug in against all the challenges, against all the criticism, against all the inquiries and investigations. FIFA as an organisation has, of course, been mired in corruption scandals over recent years. Has there been fallout for this very unlikely choice of uh, a venue for a World Cup from those corruption scandals? There's been huge fallout. So... The FIFA that made this decision in 2010, an overwhelming majority of those people have since been actually indicted in the US or pleaded guilty to corruption. And so obviously the decision that they made about sending the 2022 World Cup to Qatar has come under intense scrutiny. But the Qataris have ridden that as well. No proof has been found sufficient to have this tournament taken away from Qatar. The moment that swung it for Qatar was actually this famous lunch that was held just two weeks before the vote in France, in Paris, at the Elysee Palace, between the man who is now the emir, the ruler of Qatar, was then the son of the emir, and Nicolas Sarkozy, the president of France. And Michel Platini, the French football legend, who was then the president of UEFA, This is the highest level of politics. You're talking about the wealthiest country in the world sitting down with France and saying, won't it be in everyone's interests if Michel votes for us? And after that vote, the Qataris have bought Paris Saint-Germain, the biggest football club in France that Sarkozy happens to support. They did a huge deal to buy Airbus planes. They have massively funded French football 
And of course, the chief complaint, I think, about it being held there, apart from some would say the sheer madness of having a massive football tournament in a desert, is about human rights in Qatar. Just tell us briefly what the concerns are and whether Qatar have responded to them at all. There's two separate areas of human rights concerns. One is the human rights in terms of LGBT and women's rights in a country like that. Obviously, it's not a democracy either. But the biggest uh, issue that uh, human rights groups like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch have, have, have really campaigned on very strongly and very well, actually, to raise the awareness of is that these states have been built by migrant workers who come from poor areas of Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, Nepal, and they've really focused on the low pay, some of the living conditions of those people. Now, the Qataris have made reforms, and the focus now of the human rights groups is on, well, your reforms aren't being enforced, that there's still a lot of abuses taking place. Just finally, the football itself, how do you rate England's chances of bringing home the World Cup? I think you have to, for the first time, really, you have to rate and genuinely rate England's chances as good. And the progress they've made under Gareth Southgate has been tremendous. And also, we had the good news story in a country of culture wars and racism and all those awful issues. And these young men being at the forefront of standing up for anti-racism and other social justice movements. But... I think England, having got to the semi-final of the World Cup in 2018 and having reached the final of the Euros in 2020, not sure if anyone um, remembers that, but probably for the first time for a very long time, I think people can be genuinely optimistic that England, with this team and with this manager, do have a genuinely good chance of competing in the World Cup. So there you have it. A potentially positive note to end the year that both Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, if not Nicola Sturgeon, can surely get behind. What's clear from speaking to all my guests this week is that for Boris Johnson, the first half of 2022, at least, looks fraught with danger. With the latest wave of the virus, some mutinous backbench MPs, inquiries into two Downing Street scandals, a severe cost of living crisis and a tricky looking set of local elections all looming on the horizon. If he can make it through all of that, through to the summer holidays unscathed, or at least unchallenged, then we can probably conclude he really is the Teflon Prime Minister that we've been led to believe. But whether or not Boris Johnson survives, there are other major power shifts looming around the world in 2022. The possibility of new leaders in France and Brazil, an emboldened and all-powerful Xi Jinping in China, and a potentially hobbled US president, and perhaps even a hobbled US democracy in the White House. However it all pans out then, politics in 2022 will not be dull. I'll see you next year. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. My producer this week was Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my UK editor is Kate Day. We're taking a break for a few weeks now, but why not spend the time having a look through our back catalogue at some of the great episodes we've made through the course of this year? I'll be back in 2022. I'll see you then.